So uh, welcome everyone and just uh, congratulations with just um, sitting in the retreat in the cooker. Mary Oliver said, um, someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Yeah. If we work with the darkness um, wisely, <coughs> we discover the ruby that's buried inside here. And to be honest, it's worth everything. Hafiz speaks about how, how did the rose ever open and show all its beauty to the world? It felt the encouragement of the light against its being. How did the rose ever open and blossom and show all its beauty to the world? It felt the encouragement of the light against its being. Otherwise, we will all remain too frightened. Very haunting last line. Otherwise, we will all remain too frightened. So the light on the bud, letting the heart break <coughs> open. Otherwise, we will all remain too frightened. And, of course, there's a time and place. I love, um, actually, I call the retreat, uh, like, the retreat world. I love the retreat world. It's, it's just uh, sparking. Sparking with love, terror, hope, despair the joys, the sorrows, and, you know, the opportunity to, you know, hear from many of you, be with all of you. Uh, the intimacy, it just doesn't get more real than, yeah, this, this intimacy of sharing what's true and what's painful and what's alive, what's discovered. It very much moves me. And I often hear in retreats that are, of course, the microcosms of the macrocosms of life. This, uh, you know, in some ways it's so common, so universal, the longing to belong. The longing to experience happiness. And there's a lot of reasons that we don't experience that. And for a number of us, we've been betrayed, we've been hurt, we've been smashed. We've lost trust. Trust with others and trust in our own hearts. This is huge. Wound for so many of us, this wound of 
the loss of trust, the loss of the sense of separation, the loss of belonging, the loss of connection, the loss of interconnection. It's a story um, from Naomi Shiabnai. Let's read parts of it. It's about this sense of uh, being lost and disconnected and finding a way into the family of things. And so it's called Gate 4A by Naomi Shiab Nye, who's a Palestinian-American poet. She says, I'm wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal after learning that my flight had been detained for hours and I heard announcement is there anyone here near gate 4A that understands any Arabic? Please come immediately. Well, Naomi realized that 4A was her own gate, and um, she did know a little bit of Arabic. And so she went over, and there was an older woman in a full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like her grandma. And she was crumbled on the floor, and she was wailing loudly, Help! The flight attendant said, Help! Because <laughs> she didn't understand any English. <coughs> Naomi came up to her and said, what, What's going on? And the attendant said, Talk to her. Please talk to her. We told her the flight was going to be laid. And, and she just jumped to the ground, and, and she's just wailing and screaming and yelling in Arabic, and I don't know what to do. Well, I began to speak as poorly as you know my Arabic is, in a little bit of Arabic, and immediately she stopped crying. And what I could understand, she thought that the flight had been canceled. And she needed to be in El Paso for medical treatment the next day, and I said to her, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. And so we called her son, and I spoke to him in English, and I told him that I'd stay with his mother until she got on the plane, and I would ride next to her. She talked to him, and then we called her other sons just for fun. <laughs> then we called my dad, <laughs> and he spoke for a while in Arabic, and found out, of course, that they had, had ten shared friends. Then I thought, what the heck? Why not call some of my Palestinian poet friends and have them have a chat with her? <laughs> this all took up to about two hours. She was laughing by then, telling me about her life and patting my knee, answering questions. And she also pulled out of a sack these homemade mammal cookies, the little powdered sugar, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and she began to offer them to all the women around the gate. And to my amazement, not a single woman declined. It was like a sacred sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar. <laughs> all smiling. There was no better cookie. Hmm. And the airline served out free beverages. 
in huge coolers and two little girls ran around serving all the apple juice and they were covered with powdered sugar too. <laughs> and I noticed my new best friend, now we were holding hands and she had a potted plant she pulled out of her bag, some <laughs> medicinal thing with green furry leaves, such an old country traveling tradition, always carrying a plant, always staying rooted to somewhere. And I looked around at the gate of the late and weary passengers and thought, this is the world I want to live in, a shared world. Not a single person in this gate seemed apprehensive anymore. Everyone took cookies. They all wanted to hug um, that woman. And this is the world that I want to live in, a shared world. <laughs> the world of belonging, of connection. You know, it's very interesting. Um, the word desire has a Latin root, desidere. It, it means from the stars. Very interesting. From the stars, this belonging to the stars, this longing to belong, to feel safe, to be home. And there's moments in our lives where we do experience this. But it goes away, just, you know, everything, contractions, expansions, expansion, contractions. But we all know what we're talking about. We've all had moments, I trust, of a shared world, as Naomi Shihab Nye said, or perhaps as Paul Simon sings in a song called You Think Too Much, where he says, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face? And everything was just sunny, everything was just funny. Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? You know, that moment is sunny, it was funny. I'm connected, I'm the universe, it doesn't matter whether live or die because there's no separation in that moment. Even Albert Einstein speaks about that the notion of separation, this is Albert Einstein, not the Buddha, and he says, the, note of the, the, no, the notion of separation, he says, is an optical delusion of our consciousness. Belonging to the stars. And when you look at it, you know, these, the very, you know, these atoms make up, we're breathing in right now lots of atoms, and they're turning eventually into heart and liver and lungs and all these things. Protons, neutrons, electrons, and a lot of space. Perhaps the way Ramana Maharshi, when he was dying and his students were saying, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go. And Ramana Maharshi supposedly said to them, where am I going? <laughs> yeah. That's a heart that that's, doesn't, doesn't know about separation and the trust, the trust in the benevolence of this universe. Where am I going? The Buddha, nearly 2,600 years ago, discovered some very powerful insights, realizations. 
And I, again, I mentioned that in the last time I talked. I, I love the story of the Buddha because I relate to it so personally. You know, that story of the encountering and acknowledging these realities of aging, illness, illness and death is inescapable and catapulting him on a, a spiritual journey. So I'd like to just speak for a little piece of that journey that turned things around and led to powerful realizations. So I think, as you know, the story goes that he left the palace and for many years, six, seven years, um, the sojourn of studying from one teacher to the next and learning and mastering everything that that teacher offered as far as meditation practices. And he became a master himself. And in many cases, the teachers that he studied with said, you, you've learned everything I've learned. You sit next to me and, and you teach. And at the time in, in ancient India, uh, the common meditation practices of the day were a particular type of concentration practice that led to very deep absorption. And of course, uh, the results of these types of absorption practices, uh, the mind becomes one with the object, there's serenity, tranquility, um, many different subtler and subtler and profounder degrees of absorption and concentration and Pali, they're called jhana. And there's actually a few different uh, aspects of, or, or levels of jhana, if you will. And um, he had mastered these. And even though he was invited by his teacher, you can sit next to me and now teach, there was still something I, I still don't know. I know how to calm my mind to an amazing degree. I know how to steady it. I know how to become deeply absorbed. But there's something else. And so he had heard that uh, maybe this practice of self-mortification, punishing the body, this would do it. And just as he was such an ardent student with his uh, meditation and concentration and absorption, he was very ardent um, with... Uh, self-mortification, punishing his body. It was believed that this would be the way to awaken. And he was very, extremely severe. And it is said that he lowered down his food intake from, to one grain of rice a day. And then at the brink of collapse and exhaustion, he could actually put his hand on his belly and feel his tailbone. He realized the futility of this punishment of the body. And then he left and started eating again and taking care of himself. And his sojourn continued and he came to this 
beautiful place, a tree, and decided to take his seat at the tree and took a resolve that there's no other teaching to go to study, to learn. There's no other practice to go somewhere else that I, I'm going to stay here. Took that deep resolve. I am going to stay here. And um, took his seat and you know, it is said, and it's really hard to know, but I, the, the story is, uh, you know, so beautiful and powerful. But it's said that, that as he took his seat, he recalled the memory when he was younger. He was a boy, and um, he was at another tree. And it was a beautiful day. You know, like these days we get in Santa Cruz, just so beautiful. It's a beautiful day. He was sitting by this tree and just, oh, just, you know, feeling this connection to the world. It was just beautiful. And then he looked over and there was a, a path, uh, some ground and, and there was some oxen and a, and a farmer and, <coughs> and uh, the plow was getting ready to be pushed into the earth and they were turning over the soil to start for the planting. Because his sensitivity was so heightened, as the plow blade went into the earth, it was almost like he sensed or heard or felt, almost like the cries of the worms. And his heart just broke open with the, like the fragility, the pain of this world. And it's such a you know, powerful thing from one moment, a sense of connection oh, into this, the, the pain. And of course, that's what initially got him out of the palace, of course, too, was this remembering of aging, illness, and death. He knew that one day it was going to be otherwise for every one of us. And so he began to practice his meditation as he had done in the past, getting very concentrated again, steadying his mind, but then he did something different. Rather than going into the route of complete absorption, oneness with the object, because of being so touched with this fragility and the preciousness of life, he turned his attention to the changing nature of the breath rather than becoming at one with it. This is a very amazing moment. And because of that shift, beginning in a concentrated way to beginning to penetrate, experiencing the rise and the fall of the breath, the rise and the fall of the different senses, the mind states, powerful realizations arose within him of understanding about suffering and its causes and the path to freedom known as the Four Noble Truths. I also like to come, they were realizations. They were insights into suffering, into his own suffering. And that's what we've been teaching here. We've been working with developing and steadying the mind, developing that concentration, but also turning it towards being aware of the coming and going of things to potentially support 
ourselves to develop deeper, deeper insight into seeing more clearly into the nature of things. This seeing more clearly into the nature of things, what am I speaking about? Where it is that we get caught. Where it is that we're pushing away or grasping onto. Where is it that I'm not seeing so clearly that's creating a lot of anxiety, restlessness, doubt, fear, pain, sadness, confusion, shame, so forth. And so, this first realization was the realization of suffering, and the second was its causes. And I have to say that, you know, the deepest, deepest cause is ignorance, is not knowing, not seeing clearly. And my teacher, Tampu Lucero, he used to say, midnight is dark, the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance. It's not seeing, not knowing. Darkest of all is ignorance or unawareness. And because of that unawareness, it's not seen clearly into things. It begins to develop certain beliefs and ideas that can potentially lead us into this, uh, this notion of craving with the idea or the belief that this particular thing is going to make me be whole, make me be happy, make me be at home. And so the mind leans towards these things because it wants to be home, to be at pleasure, to feel good. So Archan Amaro, he is a beautiful um, <coughs> translation of the called the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and he says, namely, it is craving. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Ooh, those are powerful words. Compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again and again. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating, causing us to be born into things again and again, ever sinking delight now here and now there. Namely, it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone or something, to become, and the craving to feel nothing. That's a very powerful teaching right there. And again, if we have this belief of our own deficiency, our own not-enoughness, it gives rise to wanting to get something to feel whole. So we'll look at sensual delight, and sometimes we look at it like from a psychological point of view, it's like eros, it's like libidinal, it's, it's these instincts, these drives to feel good. To feel good. To be at home. And so many things in our day-to-day life that, you know, we, you know, ooh, this will feel good. Or, you know, I've said before, like the Amazon one-click, we can go shopping, like, boom. It's, it's a real rush. I got it. Boom. One-click. There's a pleasure. It probably sets off all these endorphins in the heart, but it doesn't last long. I, need, I want to do another click. It goes on. Kabir, 
He says, friend, please tell me what to do about this world that I keep on holding on to and I keep on spinning out of it. I gave up my sewn clothes and now I wear a robe. But one day I noticed the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pull back my sexual longings and now I discovered I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> this goes on for a long time. <laughs> so perhaps the Rolling Stones had it right with the theme song, I just can't get no satisfaction. The craving for sensual delight, the belief that somehow, yes, it's pleasurable, but it's fleeting. I know some of you have heard my tofuti cutie ice cream story. I'm eating in the land of my vegan ice cream. I'm just in ecstasy. I'm home. And then all of a sudden I notice there's one spoon left. And what the hell am I going to do in my life? I'll get another bowl. But I know I ain't going to do it. It's interesting, though, for us to look at that longing. To long for it. To look for it. To long The craving to be someone, narcissism. And it actually goes in kind of controversial opposite ways. The sense of inflation, I'm wonderful. Deflation, I'm shitty. It's like all caught in self. Inflation, deflation. We were saying the other day, there's a guy doing walking meditation um, in a retreat we were teaching. And when he was debriefing with the group later about it, he said, I looked around. And I saw I was the best walking meditator in the whole group. <laughs> and then and there was this moment, and then the next second later, oh shit, I'm the worst person in the world. I can't believe that I, you know, so inflation, deflation, just like that. Caught in the sense of self. I, 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 I. I'm Bob. I teach meditation. Aren't I a hot shit? And whatever else it is that I'm identified with that reinforces a sense of self and to have you laugh because that gives me, I know that I'm worthwhile because I'm dependent upon you for my worthiness. I get caught. I'm looking for love in all the wrong places from the country western song. I'm looking everywhere else. Because there's a belief that I carry that somehow my worthiness, I am dependent upon you to make me whole. And, th and it's never enough. It's like this endless thirst, I want more. Emily Dickinson writes, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, but don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. Oh, how dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog. <laughs> to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog, I'm somebody, oh gosh. How much of the times have we uh, left ourselves looking for love in all the wrong places from the country western song, rooted in this belief of 
deficiency. And then lastly, the craving to feel nothing, thanatos, the death instinct, numbing, the thousands of ways that I just don't have to be here. Can lose myself in a book and this and that. Not that, you know, books are fine, but like, I'm, you know, this sense of, I want to go numb. I don't want to feel. You know, I've been through the years, I'm an older man now. Fortunately, my testosterone has, has lessened through the years. And, you know, some guys get really worried about it, but like, I'm kind of like relieved. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but like in, in that study of lust, of passion, of wanting, what, what I, I'm really interested, what, what am I really longing for? I always end up back in the womb. I want to get in my mother, and I want to get back in the womb, and I just don't want to feel anything. And that sense of wanting to be back home, I just don't have to feel. Follow the longing, it will show you everything. This showing will help us to become more free. Because even in the womb, it doesn't last. Eventually you get, <laughs> you know, you, you go through this birth canal, it's like, oh, you're born, now what? And then, you, you know, I, when I was younger, I used to be upset with my mother. Why did they go out and have a good time? Now I have to deal with this life. And I'm going to get old and I'm going to age and I'm going to die. I was actually not so happy with them for some time. <laughs> but I'm actually very grateful for them. They're one of my benefactors. But there was a time like, now I have to deal with this. This longing. And it's looked outside of ourselves. So this longing to feel nothing from the Simon and Garfunkel song. I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. The craving to feel nothing. Lose myself. But I love how Kabir says, and this maybe goes to the third great realization of the of once you begin to understand these causes of suffering, that you can begin to lessen them, to begin to cultivate in your life a, a path of developing virtuous living, studying the mind, wisdom. But Kabir writes, I went searching for a shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here. Aha, I found it and I stayed. These are the poems that arise out of the richness of not wanting. And in your practice, like you'll, you'll come across the want. And, the, and it's really wonderful to stay with it. And the want just crescends, it crescends, it goes, and then And then just back to the breath. And like feel, compare the energy of that want and how did it feel to just the freedom. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't stop our propagation of our species here. You know, the human birth is rare and precious. And according to the Dharma, incredibly rare. Like a turtle swimming in the seven seas and just happens to come up for air and enters in through a, like a ring. Like, what are the chances of that? So the human births are considered to be incredibly sacred and precious. But if we continue to have this belief 
that my source of happiness comes from outside me, we would continue to go around and round. We will not reach deeper freedom. And so there's time, and I love in that fifth remembrance, I am the here of my own karmas. My deeds are by how I make my life, that I'm the here of my own deeds. And like we can begin to take some responsibility, like, you know, even in relationship, I'm married and, and I love my beloved partner and I can still be lying right next to her in the bed and still all alone. She can't even do it. It's not like, oh, well, I'll just go find someone else. I mean, that ain't going to help. The longing is the left leaving one's own heart. How can we begin to discover this ruby inside our own heart or Buddha nature? And it's not that desire or craving, I want to say too, is not, it's not that it's morally wrong. It's just to understand that it's a cause of suffering because we're not content, we want more. And it doesn't mean, you know, there's, there's wise wants, wise efforts, we're sitting here and meditating and you know, we're, we're applying with wi- wi- a wise way. There's, there's such a thing as wise effort that leads to the lessening of craving and suffering and there's unwise effort that leads to more suffering. This belief that at times we carry, and I hear it so much in the interviews, and of course it's been a theme of my life too, is that I am not enough. I am not enough. (coughs) (coughs) Who is this I? Okay. Who is this I? Descartes declares, I think, therefore I am. Really? What's that mean? I think, therefore I am. Who, what, is it, what does it really mean? Who am I? What is this I? Who is this I? Remember, proteins, neutrons, electrons, a lot of space, solids, liquids, motion, temperature mind states. Rod McClaver says that, um, why do we exist? 50 trillion cells make up the human body. In each of those cells, in turn, consists of atoms, countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of a specific cell. And the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space protons, neutrons, surrounded by electrons, empty space, as the universe is mostly empty space. The atoms existed before the human body and they'll, that they made up and they'll exist after the life has gone. And in the meantime, in the short interval with these atoms held together, who am I? Good question. That's been the question of the perennial uh, earliest of times. <clears throat> and even science, if you look at it, can't find an eye. 
neuroscience. There's no I to be found. Rick Hansen, in the book, The Buddha's Brain, he says that from a neurological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. That the apparently coherent and solid I is actually built from many subsystems and sub-subsystems over the course of development with no fixed center. And the fundamental sense that there is a subject of experience is a fabrication from a myriad of disparate moments of subjectivity. So that's a little heady. But anyways, where is this I? So even from neuroscience, like the tr where's the I to be found? Of course, the Buddha's powerful teachings and these marks of existence of dissatisfactoriness, impermanence, the no-self, which is really one of the most perplexing things. What is this no-self? This is like almost un-American. Like, no-self? Like, you know, we believe in me. Alice, from the Adventures in Wonderland, she says that the caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. And then at last, the caterpillar took the hookah, which is a pipe, out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation, Alice felt. And she rather shyly said, I, 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 I hardly know, sir. And just at present, at least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. And she said, I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, because I'm not myself, you see. Who is this I? So this is a very challenging teaching when we read about these in the text, these marks of existence. We, yes, we can understand they, you know, about dissatisfactoriness, suffering, we can understand certainly about change, but then this sense of, of no self. So from one perspective that I like to understand it by, and it often it's referred to in, in the text, is the ownerless nature of things. And you know, as you look at my head, there's not much hair on there. And if you could see my prostate, it's large and it's actually causing some urinary retention that I have to take medication for. And I want you to know that I did not write an email to my head here or to my prostate telling them to get bigger and my hair to fall out. As a matter of fact, I really like the age of 35, but I'm now 61, and I did not give an invitation to age more because I liked where I was. And so there's a, some sense of this ownerless quality to things. This, uh, you know, I may say go right or left, but the body will do what it does. And it's very humbling for those of us that have had illnesses and realize, whoa, my body's not going the way. Even my mind's saying go, it doesn't go. It goes less. So this ownerless nature of things, this body, it's mysterious. And actually, the Buddha speaks about the body, like that within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies 
our world. Its origin, its cessation, the pathway to freedom within this fathom long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. What makes the most sense to me is that the Buddha saw through the stories and the narratives that enslaved his own heart. So sometimes it's referred to him that he experienced the unconditioned, and if we use that term, that implies that there was a condition. And from a psychological point of view, we can say, you know, reasonably, you know, that there's a lot of conditioning, and we can see that in our own lives. We've been, we've been giving a lot of airtime to our conditions the last five days here. Reactions, activations, memories, plans. I mean, how many times have we thought about this already? I mean, like, how many times have you thought about what you've been thinking about? <laughs> it's been going on a long time. These are patterns, tendencies, conditionings, stories that I've told myself, reinforced, our narratives. And I think the liberating qualities of this practice is seeing through the stories, seeing through the narratives, and we cannot bypass them. This is very important to understand. We're not, we cannot spiritually bypass and just go to the light. That's why a ruby is buried in here, that inside that box, as Mary Oliver said, that box of darkness, there was a gift. We cannot bypass the personal. This is the very stuff that we work with to awaken our own life. And it's the gift of awareness. When we become aware, which is one of the qualities of the factors of awakening. Mindfulness is the first one, awareness. And that sets the, ca the cascade to investigation and energy and effort and joy and all these different factors of awakening that arise. But it begins with awareness. When there's awareness, we can begin to have choice. I mentioned that earlier, the Viktor Frankl quote. There's another quote by Margaret Wheatley that says that I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves with what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. Sound familiar? Yeah. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference, these old habitual conditionings, and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can begin to break the seal. We can begin to notice something new. So it's like coming back to these cravings for sensual delight, the cravings to be someone, the cravings to feel nothing. These are the stories that enslave us, enslave us. This belief that somehow this thing or this object, or if I just am away from it, I won't, I'll either find my happiness or I just don't have to feel I can get away from it that way. 
and it's spinning around and around and around. And we, we can begin to break free of that narrative, that belief that somehow I have a belief that this is what's going to make me whole. And I begin to have my own authorship, find my own heart, my own Buddha nature. These stories are powerful, what we've told ourselves. And I hear this so many times in the interviews, the stories, you know, I was brought up to think that I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, I wasn't smart, I'm not pretty, I can't write. I had the story, I can't write. My father used to say, my mother and father used to say to me, well, it's a good thing you've got your brother Barry, he'll make a lot of money. Well, he's probably right, because I'm a meditation Dharma student teacher, and I hardly make anything. Uh, <laughs> but, but like the story, like, you know, you know, like, good thing you've got your brother. He'll, he'll do it. Or my, my Uncle Sidney, when I was young, I loved peanuts. I loved peanuts. And, and sometimes my grandma would have the peanuts out on the table, and I'd get my hand, and I'd get some peanuts, and I'd put them in my mouth, and I'd chew them, and eat them. And he would like to make this joke, oh, here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. What are you telling this little kid a claw? <laughs> you know? The things that we've been told and we're developing and individuating and becoming who it is that we are and how these things have damaged us, our deficiency, our inadequacy, incredible stories of deep pain. I'm not enough. This is the work ahead of us, to break free of these limited definitions that enslave us. This is the liberating teachings of the Dharma, breaking free of these stories and narratives that have enslaved us, grounded in the profound teachings of virtue, integrity, calming the mind, wisdom, clear seeing into the nature of suffering, and disengaging from it potentially finding the place of inner contentment early a few days ago, that the breath in, the breath out. In this moment, experiencing contentment, there's no greater jewel than contentment, an open heart, a clear mind and heart. So this awareness is key. Perhaps this is why uh, Antonio Machado, a Spanish poet, says, some say it's good to dream, and others say, no, it's better to live. Best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Best of all, my friend, is to awaken. With awareness, we can grow with knowledge. We can become more real, more humane, more compassionate with ourselves. And the Velveteen Rabbit, the rabbit asked the horse one day, what's real? And the horse says, real isn't how you're made, it's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long time and not just plays with you, but really loves you, that's how you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Yes, sometimes it does, said the skin horse. Doesn't happen all at once or bit by bit. The skin horse said, it doesn't happen all at once. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it often doesn't happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you reel, most of your hair has been loved off. <laughs> and your eyes drop out. And you get loose and 
the giants and you kind of look very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly. Except the people who don't understand. Once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. And that realness, we're back home. We belong. And the pain of not belonging, the separation, the disconnection is the deep pain in our hearts. And so the ruby is buried inside, and I know at times it might be scary to go in. <coughs> There's a beautiful wisdom from Jennifer Wellwood that says that whatever you flee from will pursue you. Whatever you welcome will transform you. Getting intimate with ourselves, with our pain, with our fears, with our joys. The Gift of Awareness, uh, this is a descriptive poem from the Middle Ages from a Christian monk, Francois Fenelon. He says, as the light increases, so we could say the light being mindfulness, awareness, as the light increases, we see for ourselves to be worse than we thought. Sound familiar? <laughs> We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. So this was from the Middle Ages. It's great. We never could have believed that we'd harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. And while our faults diminish, the light way by which we see them waxes brighter and we can be filled with horror. So please bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. A beautiful message of hope. Bear in mind for your comfort when we perceive the malady, the cure begins. This is why the Sierra used to say, if you know that craving is arising, if you know that anger is arising, if you know, and the know is K-N-O-W, if you know that ignorance is arising, you are gaining knowledge. If you don't know, you're going round and round. This is dependent origination. If you know, it will break. If you don't know, round and round. So this awareness, so bear in mind for your comfort. When we perceive the malady, the cure begins. Awareness is that powerful and liberative. This is the very deep journey of healing and it begins inside ourselves. It's an inside job. It's an inside job. Great compassion. Yeah. Carl Jung writes, I feed the hungry, I forgive and insult, I love my enemies. But what if I should discover that the most poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of the offenders are all within me and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness? that I stand in the need of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. 
that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. We've spoken a lot about this notion of befriending. Befriending this broken heart. How we hold our practice, learning about kindness, perhaps at first learning about the unkind, the pain. You know, to free our hearts is the noblest of endeavors, and you know, what else is there to do? The, the other side is slavery. And to work with what we're holding back, our resentments, our grudges, the stories that I've told myself, this belief in my own deficiency, this is the work to be done. And to forgive. My mother-in-law was betrayed in her life and she had a hard life in some ways of really being put down and smashed. She had an amazing, resilient spirit, and it was amazing to see as she, you know, aged and eventually died, that I, I knew she had forgiven everyone. And uh, that was, to, you know, I aspire on my deathbed to have forgiven everyone. That, to me, would be one of the PhDs in living. And also, of course, the, the pains of resentment and grudges and ill will, whether it's to myself or to others, is such a load to carry. You know, and you think of that load and you think about people, like Miller Williams writes, have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. In what seems to be conceit or bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard and no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone. Where no eyes have seen, no ears have heard, you do not know what's going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone. We're coming towards the end here, and um, so the sense of having compassion for those you meet inclu includes meeting yourself. Just taking a moment right now and just feeling into your own heart. And I want to just offer a little reflection of reconciliation, beginning with your own heart. And so here you are. This is one end of the, the rope, is right here in this room. And it's connected way, way back to the moment of your conception when there was a you were conceived. And there has been a long and strange, and what a strange trip it's been, to this moment. Right? That cannot be denied. You're here. Every single thing in your life has led you into this moment. 
And I think part of this reconciliation is to realize that everything has led you into this moment. You're here. You're meditating. You're on the path to awaken, to work with the sense of reconciliation, even when all inside me says, no, I'm terrible. You're here to break through that enslavement, to open to great compassion. It's all been a part of what brought us here. So whatever we've done in our past, you know, hindsight wisdom, we can see much more clearly now where we were then and why we did what we did. May this understanding bring compassion. It's all been a part of what has brought us here. Feeling into this heart, opening this place of kindness for ourselves as we are. It's all been a part of what brought us here. The pain, the joy. The reconciliation of oneself through wisdom and compassion. And secondly, the wisdom and compassion of the reconciliation to those that you've hurt. Yes, as I look back, things perhaps have been fearful, wounded, unaware, need to protect myself. At times, I've hurt others, knowingly, unknowingly. May there be reconciliation with this understanding where you were, what you were living with. May there be reconciliation to those I've hurt. And lastly, the reconciliation. This might be very difficult to those that have hurt me. And what I'll say about this is just as you've come to understand that when you've hurt another, it's come from your own unawareness. Those that have hurt you has come from their own pain, their own unawareness. But also, it's helpful to recognize that as so long as I carry that second arrow inside me, as long as I carry the resentment, I am suffering too. May, even if I'm unable to forgive or to reconcile, begin to pulling out that arrow that harbors resentment that's so poisonous to our being. May all beings discover the gateways into their hearts. May all beings heal. And just even our notion of um, this relationship to those that have hurt us, or we that have hurt them. Norman Fisher, a wonderful teacher, Zen monk and poet, a Jewish boy that's a Zen priest that, that translates the book of the Psalms. What are, you, what are you? And then also does a Tibetan thing on Lojan. But he writes in the, a, a Buddhist translation of the book of Psalms, like all this old biblical language, they were wicked, they were bad, they were evil, they were unrighteous. He erased all of those words and put in one word. 
They were heedless. They were unaware. They were not seeing clearly. The whole relationship, those that have caused pain, we're not seeing clearly the heedlessness. In our practice of mindfulness, we're becoming heedful, aware, present. So I will end, <laughs> eventually. <laughs> I get caught in this light, I, I can go on for hours, but I'm gonna stop with just reading one more poem. And this is uh, from Naomi Shiab Nye as well, who wrote Gate 4A. I've read this many times and I never get sick of it. I love this poem deeply. I think like, like when I get a poem, like I love poems. And like whoever, like Mary Wade gave me this poem. I know when she gave it to me. She gave it to me at Commonweal about 20 years ago. And she read this. Like certain poems, they be, they're like gifts. They're like rubies. I, I treasure them. I remember who gave them to me because they become part of me. Yeah. So this is part of me. It's called kindness. And you know, I come from a, a, these monks that I lived with. It was a legacy of kindness that was being passed on, wisdom and kindness. But this poem is called kindness, and she says, "Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things." and feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. And what you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness and how you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop and the passengers eating corn and chicken that they'll stare out those windows forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where an Indian in a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road. And you must see how this could be you. And how that he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow is the other deepest thing. And you must wake up with sorrow, and you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you see the size of that cloth. And then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. It's only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at the bread. It's only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Feeling into this heart with great kindness. May all beings experience peace.
Thank you so much. I'm very touched with your practice, and we all are. I'm speaking for Dan and Jason and Marcy. And you know, when, when we're up here and we look out at you, it's an incredible view. Mm. Of it all, it's just incredible.